Friends Church, you are with us this morning and we are thankful that you're with us. If you need to run around or do whatever you do, that's fine. We're excited that you get to worship with us because this is important. Amen? It's so important that you understand that God wants to speak to us through his word. So as the kids are getting ready in their their crayons, I can see that they're not paying attention. But listen, kiddos, this is important. The word of God. And so we gather here together to hear what God wants to speak to us from his word. And we gather as the church, the people of God, no matter if you're two years old or you're 102 years old. We gather here as the people of God as one body to hear what God wants to speak to us from his word. And so we actively hear with our ears. We actively hear with our hearts. And we want to know what God wants to say. That's why we're going to stand up here in a minute about his word, but we are so thankful you are here. If if you need a children's guide, they are right outside these doors, and I don't mind if you're a child and need to get a children's guide and some coloring markers, that's great. Just go right outside to the left of these doors and get you one of those. We have been studying the book of Mark. It's the second gospel, and God has given us this account of the Lord Jesus Christ through Mark who is a disciple of Peter. So these are Peter's accounts of the work and ministry of Christ. And guess what? He is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen? This is who he's telling us he is. He is the King. He is the Promised One. He is the Messiah that the Old Testament has written to us about. The law and the prophets pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. And now we get to open up the book of Mark. And what have we seen in the book of Mark? We've seen the herald for the king, John the Baptist. And now, last week we saw the king's coronation as the voice from heaven says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And last week we saw this king undergo a baptism of repentance. Even though he was in no need of repentance, he was the sinless lamb of God. Why? Because he himself will take upon himself the sins of the world. And now he moves from this coronation, this big day in which he's baptized and, and, the, and the heavens declare he is the son of God into the battle. Into the temptation. The time of testing with the adversary, Satan himself. The prince of this world who took Adam and Eve through a time of testing in the perfect garden of Eden. Now Jesus will undergo a similar time of testing for 40 days in a barren wilderness, not in the garden of Eden, but a barren wilderness when he is physically at his weakness. The other gospels tell us he has been fasting for 40 days. Think about that. Not eating for 40 days in a barren wilderness. 
Remember, Mark keeps it brief. It's his Twitter version here. And so we have no details other than these two verses of the accounts of Jesus' temptation, which are given in fullness in Matthew and Luke. But we're not preaching those books. We're preaching Mark. So what is Mark trying to tell us this morning? He sees this as an un, a, a, a important. Why? Because it's important we understand that the king is confronting the enemy. Amen? The king goes on the offensive into the enemy's territory. And the enemy will not have power over him. So before Jesus begins his ministry, not only does he take on the baptism of John, which is a baptism of repentance, now he faces the adversary in a showdown and the spiritual battle ensues the king who goes into battle for his people. Amen? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. I told you you're going to stand in reading of God's word because this is what the most important thing you're going to hear all day, and we're going to do that. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. So stand in reading of God's word. It's on the screen behind you, but you can open your Bibles, and it's there too. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was in the, with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen? I told you, Mark likes to keep it brief. He doesn't like to get it long. You can be seated. Let's pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for this understanding that our God goes to battle against the enemy. That our God has overcome anything that the enemy tries to throw in our direction. And Father, we thank you that Jesus doesn't sit back, but he goes into the battle for us. Lord, we thank you and praise you that we are people who go into the battle with the Lord leading us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So some of the most inspirational speeches have come at a time of the most difficult and trying times. Often it's in a battle or a war Franklin Roosevelt, during the Great Depression, this battle, he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In 1933, coming out of the Great Depression, in the midst of the Great Depression, Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address in 1863 in the midst of the Civil War. Martin Luther King gave a famous speech, I have a dream in 1963 in the heights of the Civil Rights Movement. Winston Churchill said, we shall never surrender in 1940 in the, during World War II. But one of my favorites, because I'm, I'm a 90s kid, uh, one of my favorites was from a movie in the 1990s about Sir William Wallace. The movie was called Braveheart. I'm a 90s kid. What can I say? I can't recommend the movie, but the speech is awesome. It was fantastic with 
Mel Gibson portraying William Wallace with this blue face paint. You can see the picture here is his his army is outmanned by the English army and he leading the Scottish people and a few horsemen and spears. I don't know if we have that uh, picture or not, do we? We don't. But it it is amazing. I thought about giving you the blue war paint, but that I thought it might scare your kids. So I didn't do it this morning. But his army only has a few horsemen and a few spears and the great English army is on the other side of the ridge. And he's trying to stir up his men for battle as they're outmanned completely. And he gives them a stirring reminder that you're fighting for something greater than yourself. So I've, I've taken the liberty to make some adjustments to the speech. But here it is for you, okay? And when I mean adjustments, I mean in relationship to you as the people of God. Not to a person fighting a war or a battle in the sense of, fighting nation against nation, but you, the people of God, the church against the enemy, Satan, against the world. So this is what I said. Well, this is what he said, and I changed the words a little bit. And I see a whole army of my fellow soldiers in Christ here in defiance of Babylon and the love of the world. You have come to fight as free men and women, and free men and women you are in Christ. Yeah, you you can, it's all right, yeah, yeah, let's go. What will you do with your freedom in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you fight? The soldier says fight against that. No, we will run, and we will live for the world Wallace continues, ah, fight, and in this world you will have trouble. Run from the way of God and you will live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom from sin, shame, and death. Therefore, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ with your life, for he is worth it. Amen? You see, the king has entered into the battle. Will you follow him into it? Or will you sit back and say, no, it's too hard to battle against the things of this world? You see, the testing, the trial, the temptation is real in our world. It is real for you. It is real for me. And God is saying, put on the full armor of God. Get into the battle. 
This is what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul talking about the battle in which you face. This is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's another word for prayer, for all the saints. If you don't think the battle is raging for your soul, for your family, for your church, you ought to think again. You see, the fact is that Christ has silenced Satan, the accuser who accuses the saints night and day, but Christ silenced him. Why? Because your sin is paid for. That is the truth. So put on the belt of truth. You are declared righteous. So put on the breastplate of righteousness. The gospel brings peace. So put the shoes of readiness of the gospel on your feet. Faith in the risen Son of God cuts down any arrows of accusation from the enemy. So place The shield of faith in front of you. The spirit, the sword, now fights the temptation and you are rest assured in your mind that you have been granted salvation based upon the word of God. And that is how you place the helmet of salvation upon your head, upon your mind. Let's go. That is how you fight the enemy. You are rest assured of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross that you are declared righteous. That your sin is washed away. He has no accusation for you. The gospel of Christ allows us to fight the accuser. Because Jesus entered into the battle and won. Take off the old, put on the new in Christ Jesus. Enter into the battle. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. This is our point number one this morning. The Spirit leads the king into testing. It's pretty obvious one of Mark's favorite things to say is the word immediately. You see that in verse 12. The spirit immediately. He uses this idea 41 times in the book of Mark. I think he's trying to show us something. 
He's trying to show us the suddenness and the pace of the events unfolding. Not, as he, not only is he succinct, but he loves his fast and furious action. I'm all into movies this morning, sorry. But most likely, he's hearkening us back to Malachi chapter 3. Remember, Malachi, when we were talking about the one in front that will prepare the way of the Lord, Malachi 3.1, this is what it says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Talking about John the Baptist. But this is what it says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That sudden word is that immediacy. It's that action. It's he's coming. He will suddenly come. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He is coming. And immediately Jesus got up from the baptism and immediately drove him into the wilderness. Why? Because what God is doing is important. The suddenness and the immediacy of the battle of Satan. He came to take back the creation. He came to take back humanity from the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. So up out of the water... The coronation, boom, the spirit drives him into the wilderness. The word there in the Greek to drive is stronger than lead. It's compelling by the spirit. Why is this important? Adam and Eve failed in the garden. They were tested by Satan, the adversary, questioning God's word. Did he really say? Questioning God's character. You will surely not die. And as a result, they entered into what we would call the realm of Satan, the broken world. And this is what Satan does. He wants you to enter into that realm. To go against the word of God and live in bondage to your sin Slaves, if you will, to your sin. And you know what? It's not written here, but in Matthew, it gives us a little bit of a taste of what actually was said between Jesus and Satan. And Satan even quotes the scripture. Notice, Satan quoting scripture. Matthew 4, 6. And he said to them, If you are the son of God, this is Satan saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he's quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's questioning what God has already said in the verses before, that you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. He's questioning God's word. That's what uh, Satan does in the garden, that's what he will do in your own head, in your own mind. And guess what he does? He uses scripture. He's going to command his angels. He's going to protect his anointed one. Satan knows and twists scripture. Guess what? It's not good enough for us to just know scripture. We need to know how to read the scriptures. 
Uh, let, me, let me repeat that. It's not good enough for us to just know the scriptures. We must know how to read the scriptures. One of the reasons why we gather together as a people of God is so that we can hear the word of God in each other's hearts, the spirit speaking through one another, and so that we can know and understand how the scriptures relate to one another. The scriptures relating to one another and understanding the context and the content and understanding how it's about Christ so that we can apply the scriptures correctly into our own life. Jesus responds with the truth, right? Matthew 4, 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, we can't get into it that deep about what Satan is doing. Mark doesn't get into it. But Satan takes good things and he twists them to go against God's word. Sometimes we don't even know what we're doing is wrong or what we're doing is against the word of God. And we wake up one day and we're in this slippery slope under the control and power of Satan. But the wilderness, Jesus goes to the wilderness. Immediately the Spirit drives him into this place called the wilderness. Wilderness is the place where Israel was tested. God led his people out of Egypt. He saved them miraculously and he led them to where? Into the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.2 says this, And you shall remember the whole way. That your Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed with you with manna, which, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's Deuteronomy. So God led his people up out of Egypt into the wilderness for a time of testing. Jesus with no food, fasting 40 days, answers Satan's temptation to create bread from rocks with this statement. Not only Man does not live by, every, by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So not only does Adam and Eve fail, right? But also Israel fails in the wilderness. In the time of testing, they worship the golden calf, complain about lack of food, and ultimately reject going into battle, saying they cannot trust God's promise of giving them the land, and they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. God may be throwing you into the wilderness to show you your need for him. Your lack of ability to do it on your own. He may be recognizing that you are a sinner in the wilderness. And that you need Christ who came into the wilderness and did not sin. That is what he's pointing us to. So what does this mean for us? 
Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may proclaim, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice, the high priest who was tempted as we were, yet without sin, has caused us to enter into the throne of grace. So what is this saying? It's this saying if we are in the wilderness, if we are in the time of testing, we need to enter in and plead with our God that he would offer us grace and mercy. The king... You see, the king is battle-tested. We have a king that relates to each and every person's trials in this room. And he wants us to be reminded that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You see, the gospel transforms our lives because the same spirit that descended upon Christ when the heavens were open is the same spirit that now God sends upon his people to overcome the power of Satan and the desires of this world. And he calls for us to come and enter into his presence and ask the Lord for grace and mercy in our time of testing It's that humility in which the Lord desires to work in and through our life. My prayer for you is not that you will not be tested. That will come. But that the the God of glory, the God of salvation, the God of grace would receive glory in and through your test. As Jesus walks with you in your test. John 16, 33 says this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's the promise. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Mark doesn't give us a lot of information, does he? He doesn't even tell us Jesus won the battle, that he got out of the temptation. But he does tell us that there is an adversary. This is our second point this morning. The king has an adversary. The Spirit led the king into the testing in the wilderness. And now we see that there is an adversary. You see, heaven was opened in the baptism. And now hell is opened into the temptation. The place where Jesus was in the wilderness is called Jeshimon. Literally means the devastation. And he is in the wilderness without food. And he tells us he's not with some JV demon. He's with the big guy, El Diablo, the devil, Satan himself. 
Satan, which means the adversary is opposed to God. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the ancient serpent in which took man's ways against God. And you have the first sin and the fall of mankind. That is this guy. He deceives people against going against God and his kingdom. We believe in God. Thus, it is no stretch for us to believe that there is a supernatural being that goes against God and tries to deceive people. He's a fallen angel. And he deceives people in joining him in the battle against the will of God. You see, the the commercialization of Satan in our world today or the devil has kind of led us to not take him serious as an opponent. You know, the, the pitchfork and the horns and all that. Even even teams, colleges, universities are na- named devils. Well, but he is mentioned 250 times in the New Testament. He is the adversary. And when you look at the evil of this world, there has to be something more to it than simply misguided survival of the fittest at work. So if you think that all that was behind the Holocaust was just Hitler, a madman, I think that you're a bit naive. If you think the primary factor in your problem with pornography is you've got issues with self-control, I think that you might be a bit naive. If you think that all the distractions at work in your family that make it hard to keep God at the center are simply the result of a demanding schedule, I think we might be a bit naive. If you think that, that it is at work in discord in your, in your small group or trouble in your marriage is, is conflict between difficult personalities, I think you might be a bit naive. If you think the bitterness creeping up in your soul is just the frustration of being misunderstood, we might be a bit naive. You see, there is an enemy whose sole goal is to kill, steal, and destroy every aspect of your life. Your church, your family, your walk with God, your reputation, your character, every single aspect of your life. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So you better put on the truth of God's word. You better put on the gospel. You better put on the helmet. You better put on the breastplate. You better put on the sword of the spirit and be ready to fight with the truth. The truth is I'm a sinner in need of a savior. The truth is that Christ died for my sins. The truth is that Satan has no accusation that he can hurl against me because I am a child of the king. He cannot take me out of the Father's hand. These are truths that you must put on each day. Martin Luther was asked how he overcame the devil, and he replied, Well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, Who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. It's good. Has Jesus taken up residence in all the areas of your life? Because Satan's going to knock if he's not there. 
Remember, you were created to reflect the image of God. Your, your whole being is, is meant to reflect the goodness and the character and the grace of God. And that was marred by sin. And Christ comes and says, I'm dying for sinners so they can have a new heart, one that desires God, and give them a spirit which now leads them into truth, and they can discern truth from error. They have a desire to walk in the power of the Spirit. And the devil, who accuses them, now has nothing to say because the Spirit convicts them of sin. He leads them towards the will of God for their life. They know that they are children of God and no one will snatch them out. Of the hand of God. Verse 13. Let's read it again. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to them. The 40 days is significant here. Because Moses and Elijah. Each spent 40 days. In the wilderness. On Mount Sinai. Or in Elijah's time it was called Mount Horeb either way it's the same mountain it's the mountain of God and they both fasted on the mountain of God they met with the Lord there interestingly enough the angel actually provides nourishment to Elijah we'll get to that in a minute Moses goes up the mountain spends 40 days in fasting, and the Lord gives him what? The Ten Commandments, the law. Elijah is running from Jezebel. He goes to the mountain of the Lord, and what does the Lord do? He speaks to him in what? A whisper. There are three on the mountain during the transfiguration. One is Moses, One is Elijah and one is Jesus. And all all these, these two characters with Christ is pointing us to Christ, right? The fulfillment of the law in which God gave Moses on the mountain is Jesus. And the prophets in which God spoke like he did to Elijah in a whisper are all pointing us to Jesus. You see, Jesus is the king we need. He is the one that can fight for us. We need to put the truth on that we are forgiven, we are set free, and we are his children. So those 40 days are important in the history of Israel's history, pointing us to the one king who will be 40 days fasting, and he will... Meet with Satan himself. But look at verse 13 one more time. The second part. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is our last point this morning. The king is not alone. Mark wants to tell us he's not alone. He's with wild animals and angels are ministering to him. Right? What what are we to get from this, right? This is this is this is this is kind of how you sit down. I'll tell you my, my my process. I sit down, I read this, and I go, Lord, what do you want me to say? He was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. And then 
week, day by day, I'm spending time with the Lord. I'm reading, I'm reading commentaries, I'm praying through this. And this is what he says. The wilderness is a wasteland. Wild animals all around him. Daniel chapter 7 shows the kingdoms of this world represented by wild beasts. The power behind those kingdoms is the one who stands against God and his anointed. And Jesus goes to confront this adversary. Not only the, the, the prince and power of the world, Satan himself, but the kingdoms of this world. And he will ultimately defeat them upon the cross. It is at the cross that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent, putting an end to the rule and reign of Satan, defeating sin and death by his sacrifice for us, and reclaiming these kingdoms of the world for himself. You see, this is what God will do. The adversary, he can no longer accuse God's people. He can no longer accuse those who have given their life to Christ, who have submitted to him as Lord and Savior. Why? Because he paid through the precious blood of Christ for them to enter into his kingdom. It's here at the temptation of Christ and Mark doesn't tell us what happens, but we see Satan will not defeat God's anointed and his reign will be forever. So I think the wild animals are just telling us this is not the place of God and Jesus is entering into that zone to reclaim it for his glory. Hebrews chapter 1.14 says this. So what about the angels ministering to him? Hebrews 1.14 are they angels? Are they, sorry, excuse me, Hebrews 1.14. Are they, meaning angels, talking about angels in the previous verses is speaking of angels. Are they angels? Not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So angels are ministering. They're serving those who are to inherit salvation. Did you know that? Angels are ministering on behalf of the Lord for his people. Think about this. How about Peter when he's in prison? He's about to die. James has just died. He's in prison. He's about to die. And the angel comes and takes him out of the prison. That's where he goes and knocks on the door and no one answers. Rhoda comes to the door, doesn't answer. The angel is the one guiding him out of the prison. He's serving the Lord on behalf of Peter. How? Because of prayer warriors in the room praying for Peter. Ministering spirits on behalf of the church and their prayer. How about in the Old Testament? The angel who shuts the mouth of the lions. He is a servant of the Lord. He's shutting the mouth of the lion's den for his man, Daniel. How about 
the army of angels that are surrounding Elisha, protecting him from the Arameans. And here we say the angels were serving or ministering to Jesus. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that he has not left you alone in the wilderness? He didn't leave Jesus alone in the wilderness. He he sent his angels to minister him. Mark and Luke tell us that that these angels ministering to him after the temptation. But they're still ministering to him. In the midst of battle, after the battle, we are not alone. Just as Christ was not left alone. You see, when Christ enters into the temptation and God says he is with him in the middle of that, in the end of that, at the time the the angels are ministering to him, we ourselves, God will send us ministering spirits, angels. Why? Because he has not left us alone. He has sent us the Holy Spirit. And we must know That our God loves us. And this verse in Deuteronomy 31.8. If you were to try and figure out what I'm talking about this whole time. Just read this one verse. It's not on the screen. It says this. Listen to it. Deuteronomy 31.8. It is the Lord who goes before you. Did Jesus not go before you? To face the temptation? He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear and be dismayed. And I think that's what Mark is trying to tell us here. Our God goes into the battle. He goes into the wilderness. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And he overcomes Satan. Therefore, do not fear or or be dismayed. Whatever trial or temptation you are finding yourself in today, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And rely upon him for your sustenance. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. As the king goes into battle for us, we pray that we would not be people who sit on the sidelines. But we would follow our king into battle. Into hard places. Into unreached people groups into places in which no one wants to minister, into the city. That we would be people of God who declare the good news that the King has come. That he died on the cross for me and for you and for sinners. And that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. That you may put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation because the king has allowed you to do it. And he's given you the Holy Spirit, the word of God implanted in your hearts to do the will of God. Father, we just ask that you would just continue to encourage us to be people who live for your glory, not for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar is open this morning. Our worship team is going to uh, 
finish with the song. If you'll respond in worship, if you'll stand and respond in worship, God may be calling you into something. You may be struggling in something. This is a time to examine your heart. Respond to the Lord. There's pastors up front that can pray for you. The altar is open for prayer. Worship the Lord together.